Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 29, a conversation with Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition Land Managers, Audrey and Curtis Gale-Dyer. Audrey and Curtis have been hanging out in the red for quite some time now as both climbers and professional stewards. As land managers, they are responsible for planning and implementing large and small-scale stewardship projects all around the red. And it's no mystery to any of us, the Red is obviously a destination area as people from around the world flock there for the impeccable climbing, the beautiful Golden Cliffs, and of course, the world-famous pizza at Miguel's, myself included. Before we got into what their jobs look like as land managers, we did spend a little bit of time chatting about the recent flooding that happened about a month ago that devastated so much of the area around the Red. Many surrounding towns and communities were hit very hard by these floods, but luckily the red itself was largely spared of any irreparable damage. Audrey and Curtis said that there is some work to do to patch up some areas, of course, but for the most part, everything is okay, which I was very happy to hear about. But I really hope that these uh, surrounding towns and communities can get back on their feet quickly and come back stronger than they were beforehand. And if you want to help out, I put the GoFundMe link that they mentioned in the episode in the show notes. So check it out if you are able to help. I first learned about Curtis and Audrey after watching a workshop last year at Access Fund's Climbing Advocacy Conference, where they were joined by a couple other gentlemen from the Carolina Climbers Coalition to talk about large-scale stewardship projects, about planning them. I know every project is different. Uh, things will vary from project to project. It all depends, right? The famous, the famous answer to everything, it depends. <laughs> every project is different, but I asked Curtis and Audrey to go through a few of the steps, through the few of those primary steps in stewardship planning that they see that happened, you know, that, that happened with every project that's just across the board. Um, and, and these stewardship planning steps include assessment, recruiting, and tools. And as I was making the show notes, I noticed that these three steps spell the acronym ART. A, assessment, R, recruiting, T, tools. I thought that was very fitting as what they do 
could be deemed as art. I'm not sure if they've ever picked up on this, that this that this spells out art, but I thought that was kind of cool. The crags and natural landscapes is their canvas, so to speak, to do their work on as they apply long-term planning strategies and look at the entire climbing ecosystem very holistically. The reasoning they provide for what they do and how they do things, where they construct things a certain way, all makes perfect sense. And the light bulb kind of went off for me because I've been to the Red before. I was there about two years ago, and I've seen their work firsthand, not knowing it was them doing it, but I've seen it. And I was like, wow, this is this is really incredible. And all this incredible stewardship work they do and plan in the Red is on a volunteer basis as they both work in the medical field. So they are medical f- professionals by day, stewardship superheroes by night or on the weekends, I guess. So anyway, kudos to Audrey and Curtis for this incredible work. It's it's very exemplary and I think a lot of folks can take take away a lot of a lot of things with what they say about say about it today. One last thing about the episode is that the audio isn't the best on this one. I did my best to two things up as much as I could. But I encourage you to bear with me here on this one because there is so much rich and informative content here. So with that being said, let's get into the conversation with Audrey and Curtis. Enjoy. Well, so you guys, you you two are based in Lexington, is that right? Correct. Cool. Are you guys, are you both from the Kentucky area or have you been there? I know you've been a part of the Red River Gorge community for a long time. Is this like home base for for a while now it has been we've lived here now since 2007 uh originally michigan i could call home after my father had left the navy and um we then came down here for my residency uh, in medicine and uh, we just have not left we've enjoyed it so much nice Right on. How about you, Audrey? I grew up outside Boston, and I had family in Michigan, so I ended up going to school in Michigan, which is where I ran into Curtis. And then after grad school, we both came down here, and Lexington kind of sucks you in, and you never leave. (laughs) Well, for the few hours, or I don't know, maybe like the hour and a half I was there, I enjoyed myself. I went to a really nice coffee shop to pick up my friend, and I don't remember which one it was, but it was very elegant. It was very nice. Um, and there's really good music, just really good, I don't know, seems to be a good music scene around there. Coving, is Covington, is that kind of near you? Uh, that's yep. up near Cincinnati, yep. Okay, yeah. I don't know my uh, Kentucky geography super well. But... How dare you? You only live on the other side of the country. I know, right? Shame on me. <laughs> well, I'm from Chicago originally, so it's nice to talk nice. to some fellow Midwesterners, you know. I spent a lot of time in the UP and Michigan and stuff, so. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, my dad's from there, so I spent a lot. I actually never have been to the Lower Peninsula, even though it's kind of just around the bottom <laughs> of Lake Michigan. I, we always went north. <laughs> Yeah, and my biggest tour of uh, Chicago was running the marathon. Oh, nice. What year was that? Yeah. Ancient uh, history? Yeah, a long time ago, 2001. Long time, ancient history. Okay, okay, right on, 20 years ago. Nice. Well, right on. So you've been in, you've been part of this Lexington Red River Gorge community for a while. When did climbing start playing a major, a bigger role in both your lives? So for me, actually, my first climbing experience was when I was in college at Western Michigan University. I actually took a class, and they took us out to uh, Devil's Lake, Wisconsin. Yep. And this was in 1992, kind of dating nice. myself for just a wee bit. Um, <laughs> so that was my first experience climbing. My first experience in the red was actually in 2001. And then um, during 
our respective grad schools, um, veterinary school for Audrey and med school for me, we would come down on weekends in the, in like 2004 or five, uh, and, uh, do a weekend, kind of just get away from school and do some climbing. And then eventually we came down here for residency in 2007 and haven't left. Yeah, it kind of played a role when he was looking for residencies. He's like, where can I do what I want to do, but also be near the climbing? And so he chose the worst kind of climbing, which is overhung climbing. I might have an opinion. Other people love it. I suck at it. So it's not my fave. (laughs) Oh man, it's I got my butt kicked. I got, right? I got stumped. I got right? stumped pretty hard. I was like, I'm feeling good going into this, and yeah. it's just like you start off. You're what? like, I got this. This is easy. These are giant holds. No. Yeah, the biggest jugs you'll ever fall off of. Yep. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's an impressive place, nonetheless. And you just got cliffs for miles and miles. Go check out, and yeah, most of it's overhanging. Yeah, if not all of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so 2001, you checked out the Red, then settled in uh, just a handful of years later. When did the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition come into the picture? It was pretty much shortly after. Um, we had been doing trail work back in Michigan for various different groups, uh, mountain biking and uh, just, just trail. Backpacking the North Country Trail that was the one. Um, through Michigan is trying to be part of the um, Sea to Sea Trail, which goes from the Pacific all the way to the Atlantic. Yep. Um, and so they were working on getting a lot of that off the roads and back into the backcountry, which is really nice. But then when we came down here, we were like, we know how to do trail work, so we just came out and started volunteering back in the days of Matt Tackett to date yeah. ourselves again. And um, <laughs> yeah, that was the just kept going. Yeah, because we started working at the uh, Johnny and Alex Trail Days uh, back in 2008, and then kind of from there slowly started working with Matt Tackett, and then from Matt Tackett we then started working with uh, Mike Driscoll, and then uh, from Mike Driscoll we then took over as land manager in 2015. Yep, November of 2015. Nice. So it made it really official then, kind of took care or took took hold of the whole program and started to run with it. Yep. Awesome. Where did the name Johnny and Alex come from for those trail days? Oh, Johnny and Alex are, um, they were two climbers in the area, father and son, and they both died really close to each other, but they were very much into um, preservation land preservation and conservation of climbing and so they wanted to have trail days like when the pmrp was brand new they're like we need a parking lot no one's going to come out and do a trail day unless it's so flipping hot out that you absolutely can't climb because you're just going to slime off of all the holes so they did it in the middle of summer and got all the local climbers to come out and shovel gravel for a few hours and so after they passed this became a memorial thing and the event just got bigger and bigger so Johnny Brono should be mentioned as he's one of the main architects of the purchase of the Pendergrass Murray Recreational Reserve back in 2004 mm-hmm. with uh, Shannon and the rest of the people on the board yeah, at that the time. PMRP. And Alex was his son. Gotcha. Okay. That, yeah. Like you said, it's a memorial thing. That's a really, really smart strategy. The dead middle of the Kentucky summer. It's really smart until you've gotten mugged in by it. And you're like, I'm, I'm supposed to do things that require my muscles to move. <laughs> Heavy lifting. We have since yeah. moved it to June to try to get some uh, in-between weather. So it's not completely taking away from climbing time, but it's also not uh, completely hot that you're, you're just basically dying of dehydration. I like it. I like it. Uh, well, cool. Awesome. That's a great start uh, into the conversation. We won't dive straight into your work quite yet. Um, I, 
I would feel remiss if I didn't start the meat of the conversation by addressing the floods that have recently devastated the area earlier this month. And I've looked over a few articles, a bunch of pictures, and looked up some of the towns that were listed in the articles uh, just to see where they were to get some better understanding of the geography. And uh, let's see, what did I what did I see in the articles? Like Be- Bettysville, I think. Beattyville, uh, yeah. Beattyville, okay. Uh, pa- Paintsville. Yeah. Um, Jackson should yeah. be on that list too. Yeah, Jackson, like I think South Jackson County. I mean, it's just, and the red, of course, is not too far from there. You're still, you guys are still northwest of there. How is it by Lexington? Is it mostly kind of isolated down that way? What's what's the state of things? I feel just terrible for what's going on. So why don't you paint a picture for us? So um, the easiest way to paint the picture is that our property is predominantly in Lee County. Uh, Lee County is where Beattyville is located. Our property is only like a basically a stone's throw, we'll, we'll say, from the town itself. The town actually had a 50-year flood, and actually the water was going down Main Street up about halfway up the first story of all the buildings on the street. It pretty much devastated the whole town uh, at this point. They're doing a lot of rehab work. Their local museum, they have been posting on Facebook daily what the status is and what updates are and what help they need. There's been a huge outreach here. Um, a lot of the local businesses here in Lexington are trying to pitch in. Their climbers here in town have been donating. Um, and, of course, the local climbers down there, uh, you know, spoke with Patagonia, donated a whole bunch of stuff to the locals because, it, I mean, they lost everything. Uh, yeah. These These are you know, areas that, you know, needed, needed to, needed the outreach, um, to try and, and make up for what they've lost. Yeah. Cause they used to rely particularly on natural resources for income. Uh, and they've lost the oil fields. They're pretty much dry to some degree. There's no coal in that area. So which means they're still trying to reinvent themselves and trying to reestablish their economy. And for them to, for this to hit them right now is just devastating. Yeah. They're working real hard to get that whole tourism economy going and it's just mm. this is just a huge step backwards for them unfortunately of course uh yeah you know we'll, we'll talk about the the impacts of the climbing but really wanted to make sure we touched on this first is are they were they, were they transitioning out of that extraction economy and segueing into the tourism economy was that like this transition that they were trying to make slowly slowly it's it's yeah. times are hard and it's difficult to make changes sometimes and they're they're working on it um, I've been mm-hmm. talking with the tourism director about that, and um, there, it's it's a process. Well, best of luck to those communities. Uh, if there's well, if there's anything, you know, any kind of GoFundMe pages or whatever, we can help. I'll be sure to link those up to see if people be willing to lend a hand and, and help out. Yeah, the easiest way to find the links on that would be to go on Facebook and look up the River Gorge Climbing Coalition. There should be some links on there, or Muir Valley would probably have some links yeah, on their Muir page. Yeah, got some. Uh, and Miguel's. Um, Miguel's Climb Shop on Facebook has listed a whole bunch of places that you can donate. Okay, sure. I'll make sure to make sure to share those. Well, how about the climbing? We were actually really fortunate with the flooding. It mainly damaged the road that goes into Miller Fork, which is a private road that we maintain. Um, it took out one spot. The creek goes in, bends and then hits the road, so it took out half of the road there. Um, we are in the process now of repairing it. We should have the repaired next week. Uh, we did do a survey of our property, and for the most extent, Actually weathered it fairly well, except for a couple bridges out that need to be repaired. But we 
should be able to deal with that. Um, compared to, as you said, compared to everything else going in Lee County, we as the coalition and our property are extremely lucky. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I saw a video of the Middle Fork Bridge being fixed. Had like a forklift or something out there putting all that back together. Yeah. We have to, yeah, we have a local, uh, Jonathan Drake, who has been very helpful in terms of, he lives just on the top of the ridge above where our property is, and he has a tractor that comes down and helps us with grading the road and doing small projects like that. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. that's the second or third time he's put the bridge back for us. Oh, wow. It's designed to break away. Yeah, yeah. With with the flooding, when it comes downstream, like the creek rises very rapidly. So all of our bridges are breakaway bridges. It's just that one's very heavy uh, because of the type of poles that are under it, which is great for stability, but bad when you have to put it back in place. So it's nice to have someone with the machinery that can do it. Of course, breakaway bridges. I I don't think I've ever heard of that. That makes perfect sense, though. Do you know how much work might be ahead of you outside of this? Uh, any other? I think I saw maybe a couple of the Pender, Pendergrass Murray might be need some work. Any other spots that you might have to uh, patch up here soon? So we have already done some trail work rerouting one trail that had a small landslide that we had to do a reroute. Um, we do have another bridge over at M- Miller that will require some serious uh, trail work in terms of probably moving it upstream and then rerouting the trail around it. Um, but PMRP, we've gotten the one of the bridges put back into place. The uh, board had a small trail day to get one back into place. And then the second one, we've got a temporary fix in place and we should be able to in June, uh, get the next one, get that one fixed also. Something more permanent because that's going to be a continuous area if we don't do something bigger. Yeah, because it's slightly compounded by a uh, beaver dam. Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Is it like an, is, does the Red River Gorge like sit higher than these other towns that got hit so hard? Is there an elevation, much of an elevation difference? The problem with uh, Beattyville was that it sits along the north fork of the Kentucky River. So it's just above the river plain or on that river plain there. And so that's mm-hmm. why it got hit so hard because it was basically the tributary, the North Fork was basically collecting all the water from everywhere and then just building up. Um, it, yeah. And it's a gorge. So, you know, everything, the, when the water rises, like when it rains hard, the water rises very quickly. Um, and then when you get hard rain for multiple days, all those tributaries rushing downstream, it, it's just a compound effect and one of the really compounded this flood is prior to the rain we'd had a lot of snow and so all that snow had melted and saturated the ground then the rain hit so which means there was nowhere for the water to go into the ground it just went straight into the creeks yep yep the yeah the sponge was already full really yes yeah the ground the ground was not thirsty anymore (laughs) so it had nowhere to go yeah and the gorge obviously makes perfect sense that's got nowhere to go either but really narrowing down (laughs) All right. Well, into your work as land managers, you got some work cut out for you due to this natural disaster, but you always got some great work on the docket uh, moving into moving in and out of each year. And both of you have been in and around the red for many years now. And in 2018, the Access Fund released a short article on the top 10 climbing areas in crisis in the country. You probably saw it. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if it was listed in any particular order per se, but the Red River Gorge was number one on the list. And this is, of course, not 
due to the lack of attention that the crags are getting from a stewardship standpoint, but the sheer number of climbers coming in to experience this amazing place has been pushed to an unsustainable point. And I'd say there's a consensus that the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition is one of the leading climbing organizations in the country doing stewardship work. So I'd love to hear some more about the planning process and what goes into planning a stewardship initiative. And I, I can I just picture the board all sitting around a table discussing, you know, future stewardship projects for the upcoming season or several years down the road. Do you, do you all have a clear like planning season and then a implementation season? Kind of. Um, so basically we try and spend the winter months when it's not good climbing weather, uh, but it is warm enough to be out and moving about. We'll try and hike as much of the land as possible. We have so much land. It takes days to do all of this um, but and kind of evaluate where everything is. Um, what I started doing was taking pictures of everything, which it's a little hard to get good perspective on those, but then you've got it, you know, I just put it by area and by year so I can compare and see how much erosion we've had because I really, some of these areas, the reason why we're, you know, in that top perilous region is just because it's been so popular for so long. A lot of the areas have I mean, they've been around since the early, since the early 90s, so they just never have a chance to recover from that because they're always getting traffic. Uh, and some of those areas, when I started climbing there back in the early aughts, it was like, well, you know, I could touch the rotos from lowering off of the route. And now you can see all the way down to the bottom of the hill. And it's like, I wish I had a picture that showed that. So I started trying to take these pictures so we can see how that progression is happening, especially in like Miller Fork, since that area wasn't bolted when we purchased it we have these photos now that we can kind of track how quickly these changes are happening yeah so winter winter we kind of evaluate um at the beginning of the year um curtis meets with the board and goes over what our prospective projects are the areas that we're worried about what we expect our budget to be all of that um the whole board goes out to tour the land if we can get a date where everyone can meet up so um, that time frame is, is beautiful because then we've got the whole rest of the spring to plan for JATD, have college groups come out, uh, plan climber trail days for any climber groups that want to come out and just kind of, you know, prep for those. Some years it works out great. Other years, everything that we plan, we just throw out the window for JATD because all of these new erosion issues pop up and we're like, well, this is a much bigger problem and it has to be stopped right away. Um, so give and take. And then one of the things I've been trying to work on, too, is to get a much better handle on the property is just creating a database of, like, here's the crag, here's, like, the trail come to the crag, here are the main trails, and trying to put together, like, some kind of a systematic system of saying that, you know, the erosion here is mild, moderate, or severe. And I think one of the next steps we're going to take is adding to that also the usage of that area. Is it high impact, low impact, or medium impact? So we can kind of use that as a quantitative gauge to be able to figure out what projects we're going to be planning for the year and which projects need to be done sooner than other projects. Right, exactly. Find that finding that priority for for each project. And that's cool. You're taking uh, those different aspects and molding them together to, like in a weighted way to, yeah, one might be higher erosion, but right now it's seeing le like less traffic or something. So like maybe a, a different yeah. one take precedence over that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So an example would be like, say there's a 14A out there on a slope that's horrible that'd be for erosion reasons, but it's a 14A. So how many people are going to be visiting it? As opposed exactly. to like, you know, 
uh, out in Chocolate Factory under Grandpa Joe, Grandma Josephine, all of those, you know, once the erosion started there, because they're tens, they get hit very hard every day of the week when there isn't a pandemic. And I've even during the pandemic, even during the pandemic, we would go out there and find four or five people out there, you know, on those routes. So that's not something that can can sit around once the it hit one critical point where we lost enough of the growth that was holding it back. And we got really hard rains in the spring that we lost a foot of soil in two months. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it can happen. Two months. It can, Two months. It can happen fairly quickly, but we've been able to wow. stabilize it here lately with some uh, construction. So we've been able to, and we're actually starting to get some of that soil back because of how we constructed the uh, terracing. Yeah, because there's erosion coming from on top of the cliff too. So now we're getting that dirt and kind of slowly building it up and collecting it to try and save that. Yeah, some of it, like when we first put in the layers, it was mostly to maintain what was there. But, um, you know, a little bit of backfill, you're hauling that uphill. Um, and then because yeah. uh, we didn't have a better place to haul it from. And But the, the erosion that comes down from the top of the cliff is actually starting to aid us and fill that in. So we might actually be able to build it back up to the level where the climbs used to start. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I've I've read about that. Just like the first bolt is now like a stick clip because the it's been so eroded out. It's kind of maybe a little, little precarious getting up to it since you have a little extra extra uh, cliff to climb. Yes. Yes. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I work in stewardship as well in my uh, nine to five. So yeah, like right now it's, it's snowy. We can't get really get outside. So it's all planning and grant writing and all this stakeholder engagement and stuff and hit, you know, come April, May, you all know, start getting out, get, getting boots on the ground. So I, I figured you probably operated the same way. We tried having trail days. It's actually ideal time to get out and do trail work because you, mm-hmm. you it's too cold to go climbing. It's too wet or drippy or whatever. And we don't really get a hard enough frost that it goes more than an inch or two into the soil. So it's easy to cut trail in the middle of winter. But everybody here, no one thinks of it as good trail work. Like they look at the date and they're like, I don't think so. Um, But there's a huge interest come spring and summer and fall. So it's like, well, if that's when you want to volunteer, I will take that. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. And then this year, the past couple of years, the winter has not been very forgiving in the first place either, which has made our life difficult for doing any outdoor trail work. Yeah. Yeah. We just got to put eight big letters on there to spell free beer that'll help help a lot Um, well, I, I know every project is different, but I'd like to like this conversation to be a bit of a resource for folks to consult if they are planning a future stewardship project. So are, are there some clear general steps that you all follow to begin a, a project and then see it from, from beginning to end? Just kind of general steps you find yourself going through from project to project? Yes. So I think one of the first steps is to actually go out and do a thorough assessment of the area. I mean, actually take measurements, actually look at it. And it's also helpful sometimes to even be out there when people are using that area. Yeah, you really want to see how they're moving around and utilizing the space. Because for us, one of the big things is like, so you have the climbing area itself and break it up into the play area, the staging area, and then there's also the approach trail. So how are people using that area related to those three purposes and how do we maximize the use of areas that would be hard would be hardened enough to sustain their impact and then go from there um 
And then from there, then once we figure out the project, then it's a matter of sitting down and going, okay, so for the play areas, are we going to have to, are, is there enough raw material there, such as rocks, to be able to build the area? That's one of the big things to think about in terms of planning. Otherwise, you have to go with um, using lumber, um, which who are we going to use in terms of resources, in terms of people to do it? Are we going to get like an ACE crew or are we going to get uh, volunteers from just the local climbing community? How are we going to actually approach the project in terms of getting the work actually done? Um, and then from there, do we have the tools and the resources? I think this is one thing that people don't realize sometimes when planning these projects is that do you have the knowledge and the resources to be able to adequately do these projects? So you may have plenty of rock there for you to do rock work, but if you've never done rock work before, it can be, um, it can not daunting. go right. Yeah, daunting <laughs> or not go right, one of the two. But yeah, and the other thing is we have two kinds of trail work that we do sort of the way I think of it. And some of, you know, some of it is we've got this new area that people have been bolting because there's so much cliff line here. Uh, so there's always new areas that we're trying to get ready for the public to be climbing on uh, that's not sustainable for them to be out there just yet. Uh, so if we're laying out new stuff, that for me is a different thought process than these existing areas that have been around since the 90s and have been overloved. And, you know, so your resources are sometimes more limited in those and how you, th how I think about what I want that end product to look like, you know, and what the changes that need to happen to make it more sustainable would look like. For me, that's just a different mindset. Yeah, and the best way of striving that is with a new area, we can do what we want. We can actually make it flow the way we want it to flow. Where we're taking an existing area, we may have to be a little forgiving in terms of how things are and be able to shape it more to what is actually already there and go with it from there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, having that flexibility in a new area, you get you get you're the you're the architect, and if you're taking old social trails that a area has been around for a while, I mean that you got a lot more to handle there. I mean, do you find yourself like using those existing social trails or existing climbing trails? and trying to buff them out or you're like rerouting? It really depends. Sometimes we'll completely reroute. Like we just put in a completely new approach trail uh, to Oompa and Loompa from, you know, in that center hollow, just because we went out there to assess the damage on the spider trails that were there. And we looked at them and we're like, neither of these is a really good option and yet there's this beautiful level place we could put a new trail in. So it was one of the rare times that we looked at an older area and found a completely novel way to reroute traffic interesting yeah yeah it's case by case depends the famous answer it depends yeah. it depends you you get hit on the nail on the head it's not until we go out and actually physically look at the area look what's there already and then try to figure out from that what can we use and what has to be scrapped mm -hmm. and figuring out if people will accept the change too like if the new trail is good enough they will completely ignore the old trail, which is fantastic when that happens. Um, right. But, you know, like there were somewhere we were really cautious putting it in because they'd have to walk past the old trail. So we knew if they didn't like the new trail, it really wasn't going to work. But, um, you know, more often than not, I've been pleasantly surprised that people are much more accepting of a nicer trail. Yeah, if they're passing the old trail, yeah, they may be like, well, what the hell? I'm just going to go do this and do what I, do what I've always done. And the climbers want to get to the crag as fast as possible. And I, 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 I see that in a lot of places, and I try to wrap my head around um, 
people being so resistant to, to traveling on a sustainable trail. It's yeah. kind of funny. Well, I, I think it's funny because, you know, we think of the trail system, like, especially when I was backpacking and hiking before I started climbing. Uh, and even like when you just talk with climbers, you think of the trail system as being there for the people. But when I'm thinking about laying out trail, I'm not thinking about the people. Like, I want it to be nice for the people, but I'm thinking about the environment around it and how to save the rest of the environment around it. That trail's not there for the people. It's to keep the people off of the other areas. So, you know, it's it's a completely different different way of looking at it. So, you know, the climber might go, well, I can climb something steeper than this trail, so why is it not so steep? And it's like, because it's not there for you. <laughs> That's a great way to kind of just flip the narrative a little bit, just to keep the people off everything else that's so uh, maybe not fragile, but they can be impacted. I mean, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, compared to the foot traffic of 40 to 80 people visiting it on a weekend day, it's fragile, man. <laughs> right. And yes, I, think, I agree. And I think this is also where we have an interesting advantage, my, uh, my wife and I, and that we're both in the medical field, and we deal with people on a day-to-day basis. So we kind of understand how not necessarily people think, but how to to gauge how they might think to be able to de- design the trails in such a way that might make them happier. Yeah. Um, Temple Grandin. All right, do you know who Temple Grandin is? I don't. So she is this amazing person uh, who works with cattle. Um, the She works with the food industries um, with your large animals. And she is autistic and she understands the way that the herd mentality works with cattle so she has been instrumental in completely rewriting how fences are made around them and how you get them to go into a a cattle chute so that you can get their vaccines done or whatnot uh you know if they need to be drenched or if they need medical attention how do you get them to go into that so she changed them from straight shoots they used to all be very straight to having these gentle curves and you know like where you can just follow follow your friend down through these curves it's enticing what's around that bend uh so that they really want to go through through the chute rather than you know trying to avoid it uh and so it's calming for them as opposed to being stressful and a lot of what she says about cattle completely applies to people um so as a vet i kind of you know i'm just kind of lumping all of the little mammals together i'm like yeah i want a trail that gently winds around and curves and i can follow the person in front of me you know so it's it's really interesting to think about how people actually have a herd mentality yeah so totally. you can keep that herd onto the area that's been designed to, you know, maintain to maintain itself that has the the durability for them. Then you've won ninety percent of the battle. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something that really jumped out at me. I, I did a little recap and watched the the workshop from the advocacy summit this past or advocacy conference this past year, and with you and the and the two gentlemen from the Carolina Climbers Coalition and. Yeah, I mean, you guys are, you, all of you are like, yeah, top tier stewards. It's amazing. And th- that really like jumped out at me. It, towards the end of your two presentation, you're talking about uh, how do you, f- I forget exactly how you framed it, but what came out for me was like, you're tapping into like this side of human psychology and how people like move around, understanding how people are going to behave at the crag, where they're going to stand, where they're going to drop all their stuff, where they're going to play from, where they're going to come off the roots, you know, if it's an overhanging route, so on. It was really impressive that you're, that you're looking at this whole kind of ecosystem and, and understanding this climber behavior uh, and implementing that or, or putting that into your project planning. 
and it's one of those things like climbing has become much more social than it used to be. You know, when we both started climbing way back in the day, when I was your age, uh, you know, it was just, you'd go out with your partner and you would be alone at the cliff. And it was, you went out for nature and for solitude and, you know, you weren't there as part of a social group. And now most people are going out climbing in groups. And so these areas that were initially designed to have two, maybe four people at a time, suddenly we're seeing groups of 10 or more and multiple of those groups all coming out at the same time. There's this huge social interaction happening that didn't used to happen at that location. And it's something new that we have to think about to be able to plan for the future, you know, especially as the popularity is only continuing to increase. Yeah, we've got the Olympics this year. Exactly. Yeah, the Olympics this year, it's, it's a whole gambit of of increased uh, climbing use. Yeah, gyms, uh, movies, the Olympics, it all contributes. Uh, I think, you know, it, it, it makes me happy seeing more people join the community, but we're, we get in our own way with these impacts. I mean, more people, <laughs> it's great, but what's, what's the result of that? It's more impact. It's right. just, that's just the way it is. Um, so the, the, the few steps that you listed out, Curtis, was assessment, yes. uh, like recruiting and having, and tool, assessing your tools and resources. Is yes. that all three? Yes. Yeah. So what, when you're doing the assessment, do you have a systematic way of doing that and how to inventory your areas and assign them different levels of impact, things of that nature? Um, we have been working on making a more systematic approach. Uh, approach. Uh, recently, in the fall of 2019, we uh, board approved alien management procedures and policies. And within that, we have what we call the potential impact assessment, uh, predominantly to be used on new areas, but it also is a tool that can be used for uh, looking at older areas. And a slight little hint, it's loosely and very loosely based off of NEPA in some ways. Uh, to mm. look at an area. Uh, it, we figured reinventing the wheel was not worth it. So with that, we have some very specific questions in there we look at, like, is there parking available? How far is the parking from the climbing? Uh, is there a trail system already in place between the area and the parking? Is the trail appropriate or does it need to be rearranged? And then starting to look specifically at the area itself, looking at the landing zone, where the people come off the climbs, where they belay, and then looking at the staging area. and those areas in particular we're looking for erosion are the surfaces hardened with rocks in them already or are they on a 50 percent grade slope which is then going to need some reinforcing those are the kind of things that we kind of like systematically look at if i want to put it together in a very quick nutshell yeah it's all about breaking it down i mean you look at one area and you're like oh this is a mess but if you break it down into different areas where you're like okay let's just look at belay bases okay let's just look at landing pads okay let's just look at the hangout zone it becomes much smaller projects, and that's a lot easier to handle. Do you use some kind of uh, app or software on like iPads or something to keep track of this stuff? How are you actually doing yeah, that, that uh, inventory um, collection? So the PIA is a form we can use to fill out if you want to form that out. Uh, we do use Google Docs a lot to write down and notes and such. Uh, as Audrey had mentioned before, we're also taking a lot of pictures. Um, along with that, occasionally we do take measurements. Um, we're starting to take a lot more measurements, especially looking at where the original um, climb where the original dirt level was at the base of the climb and where it is now so we can have a more quantitative um, 
measurement of what is happening. And I think that's the biggest thing that we're moving towards here at the coalition is we're trying to get a lot more into the quantitative instead of saying, well, it's eroded. How much has it eroded? And so we can have a better gauge and be able to figure out where we're at and how soon the work needs to be done or not be needs to be done. Yeah. So the quantitative quantitative over qualitative qualitative can be great and all but without those numbers and exact measurements and the, you know that the qualitative is a little more just more abstract and i could see the quantitative yes definitely behooving you in the long run yeah are you familiar with something called the limits of acceptable change very much okay <laughs> I, I'm very familiar with that nipa all that yep. yeah yeah so i've started looking at the limits of acceptable change and and how can we implement maybe just a minor fraction of that just to help me kind of better gauge the property and then be able to leave especially when in the future when the job gets passed on to someone else how can i make sure this is an easy transition of information to somebody else and that'd be one way of trying to do that without doing the whole procedure we don't want to do the whole thing limits of acceptable change that's a bit intense but um but at least using some of those principles to help guide us here to be able to move forward be the way of phrasing it yeah, you don't want to go through that whole process, and you sure don't want to go through the whole NEPA process either. But I, 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 tip, I tip my hat to you all because I, I, I see the benefit in NEPA. I mean, I think our world would look a lot different without a very thorough environmental process and review. It is cumbersome. It is long. It is arduous, and it's kind of a dirty word sometimes. But <laughs> It's, painful it's, it's, it's literally a four-letter word you know a four-letter acronym but um it, yeah it can be painful but it's I, I really commemorate you you all for having that uh vision of like we really need to think bigger picture here and think of that whole ecosystem yeah people don't do things that are that involved and that painful if it didn't have a good reason to be there you know like their value the value that you put on that is is definitely worth the the time and the effort and the frustration um and it's just a little bit different since we own the land that we don't have to be quite as intense and as thorough with that because we're all kind of on the same page as to what the main purpose of the land is um so it makes it a little bit easier but i mean the value in that is just unspeakable yes could not agree more uh recruiting number two you all don't have a dedicated like conservation core you know it's like the front range climbing stewards uh here in colorado i think i think carolina might have their, i can't remember what uh tom and and uh, mike said but um who are you recruiting who what, what is do you have like, some go-to crews that you can tap into so what we're doing right now is uh so we have audrey and i as the land manager and assistant land manager we also mm-hmm. have a list of people who have gone through some various training for our land management procedure policies we can use as crew leaders. And then we mostly get volunteers. Uh, we get college groups. Uh, we, we're actually here shortly, we're gonna have a group coming down from Mad Tree Brewing. Uh, some doing, because their, their company is 1% for the planet, so they need, they're coming down to do some volunteer work related to that. Um, we've also in the past have used a um, ACE crew, which has been very helpful. And, and the NCCC. Yes, the NCCC has been uh, a godsend to a large degree. They're the ones that have done the most heavy lifting out at uh, Gallery, which was a big project. And they've also done a lot of the uh, other trails that to a large degree may not have been looked as wonderful of a project for a climber to come out and do, but it was something that we needed to get done. So we were able to use them in, in place so we could save the more 
glamorous. Sexier projects. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to go more glamorous, but okay. More glamorous projects for the climbers. Because that's the other thing we try to do too, is the projects we, we try to make sure that they are something that the climbers want to do and that there's a reason for them to do it and that there's a reason they believe it's necessary to do so and they have investment in it like if they don't feel invested in it it's hard to get the 12 climbers to come out and work on an area with five eights it's hard to get five eight climbers to go out and work on areas that have 13s you know it's it's the same difference they're just not invested in those areas as much because they have no reason to be there otherwise that's such a great point i love that i never really thought about it that way yeah, and we, we've tried to think about that from the start, and that has meant we've been able to maintain a few more volunteers because of that reason. Yeah, and yeah. I can't speak highly enough of having like contacts within the climbing gyms. When we have somebody in the climbing gym that's invested in giving back to the community, that's willing to talk to the people in the gym when they come in, when they're checking in about, you know, hey, we got this trail day coming up, come sign up, um, we get infinitely larger turnouts at our trail days we've had trail days that had over 30 people show up just on a random saturday uh be just because one gym had one employee that was willing to talk about the trail days to their clients and you know or bring out one of their climbing teams or suggest to their climbing team to come out and when we've got that kind of involvement from the gyms it helps so much Um, without it if it's just us advertising on facebook you know that doesn't reach as many people Mm, yeah, I mean, that direct, direct face-to-face in the gym, I mean, yeah. I think that within itself, I mean, yeah, this that direct contact, uh, contact, you can just really get that message clearly across instead of something just behind a computer. Exactly. So it's, more person, it's more personal, I guess. Yeah. I used to talk about rock karma, and, you know, we had some people that, you know, they would come to trail days, and that increases your rock karma. Um, but, you know, like, if you convince 10 other people to come to a trail day, that's really increasing your rock karma. Definitely going to send your proj, like, next week. Yeah, you know sure. it. Just float up it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Number three was uh, tools and resources. And you're talking physical tools, uh, pulaski mm-hmm. shovels, whatever, rock bars. And then if you, and then like you alluded to earlier, if you got all this material, you don't know what to do with it. You're not going to get anything done. So how do you bring in, I mean, you two are obviously the experts for local climbing organizations that don't have land managers, land stewards, any thoughts or recommendations on how you could tap into someone who has this expertise? Yes. Um, one of the easiest ways is to um, hire an access fund team, conservation team. Yes. They can definitely come in and uh, help kind of guide you in different directions. Uh, barring that, uh, the two gentlemen in North Carolina, they're actually, their community college actually had a class on how to build trails. And that was something they dedicated time and effort to uh, doing. We've also noticed that um, bringing in like an ACE crew is another opportunity that you could actually uh, learn from them because they do a lot of rock work and trail cutting. Um, the other option is too, is we, for us, let me actually explain how we kind of became experienced. Uh, we, besides all the trail work we had done before, we had never really done as much rock work or laying out trails. So the first year we actually, um, talked to many people. We actually had two U.S. Forest Service Rangers that helped us lay out some trails on our property to give us the experience we needed. Uh, along with uh, another gentleman from the ACE crew came down and helped kind of uh, run a trail day for us and, 
be able to teach us also again how to lay out trails and then we actually learned from the access fund uh, how to do rock work and we actually have a weekend uh, where we do one day of trail work layout cutting all of that and one day of you know how to for rock work uh, every year except this past year because of the pandemic so anyone's welcome to come to that every level and that will be the weekend after Mother's Day. That's the easiest way to remember it. We're going to be doing it every year, hopefully, the weekend after Mother's Day. All right. All right. Cool. Well, that's uh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for lining out those few steps there to get get someone started down, down the stewardship road. Some of the pictures that you showed during the advocacy conference this year was of the tree roots sticking out, sticking out of the ground. It reminded me of some kind of like scary, like cartoon and, or like something out of a Tim Burton film, like Nightmare Before Christmas. It's like these veiny, fingery looking <laughs> roots that are sticking out, but it was pretty ominous looking and uh so it's clear that the vegetation around staging areas and other travel areas are being heavily impacted and i think to the untrained eye someone might think that those just that's just the way some of these tree roots look like out there what are the most common issues that you have dealt with are there certain projects you find yourself needing to work on more than others i think one is removing old user developed trails that was would be like one of the first top ones in the list and putting in a more sustainable trail. And everything basically comes back to erosion control for us. Yeah. Because then the next thing, some common issue is, especially any area, it seems like Murphy's Law here is that anywhere there's a moderate climb, something under 10C, has a soft soil or the slope at the base of the climb is like 50% grade versus like a 512 has like a full rock shelf underneath it that doesn't have any erosion and because it's all overhung here it has a lot of protection from the elements whereas your less difficult climbs your more moderate climbs aren't going to be as steep so you don't get that added protection a lot of the time we keep on returning to belay slopes landing areas and staging areas in moderate climbs and then rerouting old user-defined trails Gotcha. I've, I've, I've seen all the work you all have done firsthand when I was out there almost two years ago now, and the nice wooden railings and stairs. And I want to say I was around maybe like snozberries or something at the yes. chocolate factory. I, yeah, I, I consulted my guidebook and I was like, I think I'll try to, I think I could probably remember where I was. And well, that's good. I, I got it right. I haven't seen that kind of infrastructure like anywhere else before. And you know, I'm climbing mostly out in the West and the desert and Southwest Colorado, where it's certainly dry and I visit some areas that are definitely less crowded uh, around me. And it, I mean, we're getting back to some of this infrastructure you guys have built. It's just, it's so impressive. It's, it looks tasteful. It's well done, professional. Is that due to, I mean, do you need that big infrastructure due to climate due to uh, a certain number of people? Is it a combination of all that? It depends on the area. And yeah. Snozberries is in a very um, difficult, was a very difficult area because of the slope there and because there was no vegetation at all there prior to what work we had done. Yeah, there used to be vegeta- vegetation and it all got ripped out. Uh, some climber thought he was doing everybody a big favor because he thought it was poison ivy and it was not. So it's oh, all gone. Man. Yeah. And so then once that was gone, there was nothing to hold the slope in place. And you've got routes where if you fall and you're getting lowered off of it, you're going to be right in the middle of that slope. So 
It was one where I think we spent over a year watching people climb and trying to figure out how to get people off of the slope and coming up with lots of really bad ideas. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that that was that would be considered an extreme example of what we do in terms of trying to control the traffic of people just because the fact that it was just a raw slope and the way the drip line is from the top of the cliff comes down. It was just slowly eating back the uh, belay area and to the point where eventually in about 10, 20 years, you probably would have a whole new base that'd be about 20 feet lower. Wow. Wow, that's so that's so wild. Just uh, that'd be something to document over time with photos and yeah. time lapse of sorts. Is there? Uh, I mean, you've worked on so many projects. I imagine. I'm sure the list is just endless. Is there a particular project like you're you're particularly proud of that you'd like to highlight that checks all these boxes or steps of planning a large scale a large scale stewardship project? I will talk about one, and then Audrey will talk about another. So the first one I'll talk about is kind of more of a general general project, I think is the best way of describing it. So Miller Fork Recreational Preserve, we had just purchased in, please don't quote me exactly, I think it was 2012, roughly, and uh, it was a brand new area. There was no climbing on the area at that time. There was no trails. There was no parking lot. There was just an old... Uh, oil service road that went through the property. So that property uh, was first being worked on by Driscoll, and Driscoll got some things started on there. And when I took over in November of 2015, then I went from there and uh, continued. So I basically had the opportunity to take an area that was, for the most extent, virgin and create a, a concise set network of trails in terms of what we refer to as highway trails to get you around the canyons. And then basically from that, having the spurs coming off in terms of the crag trails to get up to the crags. And it also allowed us the opportunity to to be able to uh, get ahead of the erosion at the belay areas and be able to put in a lot of uh, stabilizing either with rock work or uh, with wood. Cool. Awesome. Right on. How about you, Audrey? Um, I mean, for me, my my big heart project is the gallery, the right side of the gallery. The left side still needs some love. But, um, you know, that's one of the areas that when I first started climbing looked completely different than it does now. And um, so the erosion that was happening there was just insane because it's this huge concentration of moderates. It's been around since the early 2000s, and it has just been really loved almost to death. So we that was something that we weren't prepared for when we stepped up to the plate to do land management. And, you know, we saw that there was tons of rock. You know, we have that whole amphitheater to the right of it where we could get all the rock and, you know, backfill that we needed, crush all of that. And we so we knew that we had the potential there to do it and have it look really nice. But, you know, I didn't want it to all be wood. I didn't want it to be ugly because I think wood is ugly. Um, it serves its purpose. I use it a lot. But if I can do it out of rock, I want to do it out of rock. And I actually was talking with Amanda, who used to work with the Access Fund. Uh, She's up in New Hampshire now. And I was talking with her about all of the rock work that we needed to do and how much learning and how many hours it would take. And she looked at me and she said, 
if you had to do everything else on your property in wood in order to do this in rock, would you? And I looked at her and I blinked twice and I said, yes. And that was it. I was committed at that point. Like, this is going to happen. So, you know, between writing the grants, uh, that was the first time I ever wrote grants. We had to rearrange who was going to come out and teach us rock work, I think, three times. Um Managed to get an NCCC crew to line up with the Access Fund uh, conservation team coming out. And so I took time off work. Curtis took time off work. And we went out there while the NCCC kids were there uh, and the Access Fund was there. And we learned alongside them. And that was critical for us because we took that knowledge and went to the nursery. The nursery's only been around for four years, but it's got a five, a six, a seven, and an eight right next to each other on a very steep slope uh, and literally took that knowledge base and could apply it to that and salvage that whole area. Like whole other projects have come out of the gallery that I didn't anticipate when I started work on the gallery and how quickly the rock work can happen has sped up for us as we get more time and uh, experience with it. So for me, that was just the best launch pad I could have asked for. That's that's amazing. I think I was going to ask you both what your biggest lessons and takeaways are. And one bigger takeaway from me, just from listening to that, is that you you made that very sustainable. Taking that knowledge from from those cores that you did that you learned from the Access Fund, the NCCC. I mean, that's so important because once they leave, if they don't teach you anything you're back to square one. Like, you're like, then you gotta, you gotta figure out how to relearn all this stuff. So I think that level of sustainability right there is very key. I think the other thing that for me is a big takeaway and it sounds negative, but I really view it as a positive. It's one of those flipping the things is that people love to complain. So if you don't hear <laughs> anything about the trail work you put in, that doesn't mean it's working. Uh, you know, like, so no one is ever going to, I've heard complaints about our signs that they're not as rustic as the old signs. That's fine. You can read them. Uh, you know, they're not as rotten either. Um, but you know, that means that they saw them and they looked at them and they formed an opinion about it. You know, people complain about, uh, the woodwork cause it's ugly. I agree, but that means they used it. They saw it. It worked. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So for me, like, you know, you can't make all the people happy all the time. But if you work really hard, you can piss everybody off. Um, So for me, like taking that, like, hey, they noticed what I'm doing. I made an impact upon their climbing experience because they like the rock work and complimented me on that and don't like the woodwork. So that for me is just anytime we get complaints, it's not even a bad thing. It's it's really reassuring because they noticed that something changed and hopefully for the better in the long run to make it more sustainable. Um, it's worth it every time, even if most people don't understand why or are annoyed by it. They're like, oh, my approach trail is longer now. Yeah, 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 it is. Uh, really happy about that. Um, so for me, it's like taking that and it's when we get into squabbles about what the best thing to do is it's like find a better option, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I think there's a saying in that maybe in this field, or if you're working in like community conservation, if you're not making someone mad or pissing someone off, you're probably not doing it. Right? <laughs> you know? yep. I think that's just how it, the nature of the beast. <laughs> yeah. Totally worth it. Yeah. Are there any other smaller, like more nuanced details that you might, think might get overlooked working on a project again going back to the workshop that you both did uh for the advocacy conference um 
you mentioned something about hauling and like moving material from point A to point B. And I think, I think that's something that can get overlooked. Like, okay, we got all this stuff. Oh yeah. We actually got to get it up to the crag. If you do have like a little bit of an approach, is there stuff like that that you could recommend? Like here's some fine details that you don't want to overlook. Yes. So one of the fine details that, that just hit me right now that you need to pay attention to. So if you hire an access fund team or an ACE team, or you have an intriple seek team, it would be best to make sure all materials are there on site before they get there to take the maximum advantage of their time so that they don't have to waste their time hauling the material there. That that's something simple that uh, climbers actually have a few climbers who specifically during JTD, that's what they want to do. They want to haul. They, we actually, you know, we named it Go Ruck as far as the project goes because they were like, well, I don't want to do things that I can mess up. I don't want to move rocks and set rocks. It'll just fall back down. I don't want to cut into a slope that's already, you know, steep and ruin the trail. Like, they're real worried about that, but they're like, hey, I can get a workout. I needed a workout, and I can still <laughs> say that I did some good. And they're just like, yeah, I want to go Ruck. I want to carry heavy things, long distances. And, like, for anyone who has any knowledge about what Go Ruck is, like if you just Google Go Ruck and you sign up for that project, you can't say you didn't know you were just going to haul things. So most people who sign up for it are really happy with that experience. And it's like, hey, if that's what you want, fantastic. I need that. Mm-hmm. Then on, And then on the flip side, when the project's all done, getting the excess material out of the location. Otherwise, yeah, that's a hard one for us. Yeah, we kind yeah. of forget that occasionally, and then pieces of wood and lumber end up in strange places, and we have to then move them around. Um, one of the other small things that we've noticed here lately is that sometimes when we do try to uh, close off an area to climbers, that it does seem to help if we can do some revegetation. Uh, planting trees or transplanting ferns or other things like that to speed up the revegetation project. So it would be fine just to leave the area alone and let nature take its course. But we've noticed that if we can put some plants in there and kind of make it look like it's more natural, it helps the climbers know that this may not be an area that we want to go into and that that is an area that's being revegetated. Because you can put a sign up saying it's revegetated, but if you have that sign and then you have some extra plants some in there, wee baby plants. it kind of helps kind of cement that all home. Yeah, and that's one of those things like, you know, we've had to embrace the 80% is done oh, yeah. kind of rule. And uh, that's one of those things that kind of gets lost in that last 20% is like the revegetation or, you know, putting duff back over where you've just cut trail on the downslope so that people don't want to walk down there. You know, like those little things that get left undone because you almost never completely finish any project. Um, it's, it's always nice aesthetically when you can get that in. Um, the other thing that helped us a lot, I think, was tiny little signs to help people understand why the changes are there. So like if we have to tie off an old spider trail, we'll try and come up with some really obnoxiously annoying little ditty uh, to explain it. You know, like uh, rewriting you take the high road and I'll take the low road um, to get to the North 40 or um, Oompa Loompa songs for Chocolate Factory, making Star Wars references for the dark side, you know, all of our little climbing areas. If we have to do little things and get people, you know, like to not take that old trail or to not use that drainage those little things actually work oh yeah it's very creative and that's it's relatable instead of just saying stay the hell off the trail or you know it's very way more passive and just really yeah relatable and then just fun to read <laughs> one of the other things that i think it kind of gets missed too occasionally is not giving enough thanks to the volunteers that come out 
and really making sure you show your appreciation to all of the volunteers who come out and spent their time maybe giving up climbing or whatever the case may be to be there to try to, to give some in, um, positive impact back to the area that they love. Perfect. That's a great way to, yeah, to wrap things up and make them feel appreciated, right? Exactly. So, yeah, it comes down to. Um, well, great. Those are those are great, great points that I hope uh, will help folks not overlook uh, as they're working on their project and getting things getting things going. Um, well, I want to start putting a bow on this thing here and wrapping it up. I got a couple more things I would like to go over. Uh, is there is there a level of community involvement? I'm gonna, it's, we just talked about community a lot, but do you, do you speak or consult with the local community prior to starting a project? Is this um, like, hey, guys, we got this idea for, the, for this trail or this area that needs some work. Like, do you take input or feedback before getting things started? Dominantly, we, we focus and talk with the board if we're going to do some kind of a dramatic or major change. Most of the time, we try to stay to a smaller, less grandiose level. Um, we're running into a small situation here in the Red River Gorge that we're moving away from being a local climbing area to more of a destination climbing area. Oh, yeah, big time. And so that kind of complicates things in terms of getting the community involved. Yeah, the community burns out on doing all the upkeep because 90% of the people coming from outside places aren't going to come in and do a trail day most of the time. And a lot of times they'll be like, oh, I didn't know. And it's like, of course you didn't. You're coming from three states away. Like, how? Sh- why would I expect you to know that and to give up one of the one and a half days that you're here to do a trail day? And a lot of times I'll tell them to go back and do a trail day at their local crag, you know, like to, to kind of do the payback. Or, you know, if they have a group that comes down for a week, maybe one day, you know, we can set something up special for them that meets like what they want to do. Um, right. But it's really hard. And actually, like as far as taking, you know, community involvement and community advice and feedback on it, those stairs under the Grumpelump area, those weren't actually our idea. We were talking about fence lines and things like that and how to work around it. And some guy came up and was like, you know, you're going to need a staircase under every single route. And we looked at him and our jaws dropped and we went, you're absolutely right. You're right. I don't like it, but you're right. Um, you know, so that wasn't even our idea. Um, so we do, you know, when we're out there, especially in busy areas that have a lot of use, we do get feedback because, you know, you can hear us talking about different ideas and just throwing things out there. And, and a lot of people will just join in because it's fun to talk about that. You know, people get really excited. They're like, oh, you're going to put flowers there. There's going to be ferns growing there. That's going to be real pretty. And you're like, Yeah. <laughs> And also we have Johnny and Alex trail days, which means at that point um, we do get a lot of conversation back and forth what we may have done that day, and we do get some input from there. And, of course, things, whenever we get input, it, it impacts everything we do in the future. Right, right. You take that and, yeah, move forward, move forward with it. Um, well, Audrey, I got some of your takeaways. How about you, Curtis? You had uh, one or two takeaways or biggest lessons from your time as land manager? Um, the biggest one is learn. Definitely, if you're going to take on projects like this, is to learn as much as you can. Uh, I've come to the realization that a land manager is a career and that it's not to be taken lightly. We knew it going in, but there's a specific kind of reality that sets in when you suddenly need to learn a whole nother career. Right, right. 
This is something you do on a volunteer basis, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. If it wasn't for the two of us working together, we wouldn't be able to uh, pull this off. All right. Copy that. Curtis, what is, uh, what is your definition of advocacy? Oh, this was one I've been, I, since I lo- saw your questions, I was trying to debate back and forth in terms of advocacy, what it really means. To me, I think it means is that you have a, a passion for something and you want something to, you focus on that passion to be able to solve whatever problem it is. And so for me, it was it was seeing the changes in the environment and the erosion that was happening and then taking a strong um, approach becoming land manager to try to then work on that advocacy and then for me it really turned into um understanding and trying to teach people about conservation versus preservation which is what we try to do a lot on our property and quickly conservation is just trying to harden the area for people to use and preservation not using the uh, original definition but just an area that we're trying to just let nature have instead the old the timeless uh, Gifford Pinchot versus John Muir oh, yes. argument. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. Yeah, Audrey, how about you? What's your definition of advocacy? I mean, for me, it's more sort of the overall approach that I take. The you know, I want to make sure that the reasoning behind what I'm doing, my my purpose for doing things is very clear. Um, I want to make sure I'm safeguarding resources and empowering other people to do the same thing. Like I want, I want there to be buy-in. I want generational ownership of this land. You know, a lot of people here that are climbing, they're like, well, it'll be fine. You know, well, well, I'm a climber. And I'm like, well, what about your kids? You know, so then they'd have to think about it generationally. Like it's not my land. It's not your land it's my kids land it's my grandkids land you know those sorts of things so having them feel making them feel empowered to want to safeguard those resources in the same way um, and have ownership in that conversation and in the work and impact that they make all right thanks everyone for tuning in i i really hope you all enjoy this show as much as i enjoy making it it's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to so thanks so much for listening before you depart i want to run a few things by you i started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year and of course to support the mission of access fund so i'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet become a member of access fund your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving stewarding and advocating for climbing there are varying levels that you can that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way. And I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you all next time.